Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's return this morning to our verse-by-verse study of Luke's gospel. And our text today is the first 13 verses of the 16th chapter of the gospel of Luke. Now the Lord Jesus in this text is coming towards the end of his earthly ministry. He's teaching publicly to everyone who would come and listen to him. But he's teaching primarily through the means of parables. We have recorded in the New Testament several dozens of these parables, which as you likely know are earthly stories with heavenly meanings. And that is their application has eternal significance. And that's certainly true of the parable before us this morning. And like so many of Jesus' parables, this one has to do with stewardship. The fact that we are given blessings that are not our own, they're gifts from God, and we will be held accountable for how we use those blessings. This particular parable about stewardship is very different than I think any other parable in the New Testament. And I think you'll see why as we read it. Let's read Luke 16, verses 1 through 13. Now, he was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do so that when I am removed from this management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors. And he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. And then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. He who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much." Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust true riches to you? If you've not been faithful in the use of what is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. He either will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now, in this parable, the Lord Jesus introduces us to a character who without question is crooked, dishonest, and disreputable. In fact, the Greek word used to describe his behavior is the word from which we get the English word devil, diabolos. And yet, surprisingly, this crooked character is used by Jesus to teach us something about the kingdom of heaven. And so, I've titled the message today, Straightforward Lessons from a Crooked Character. Now let's walk through this story and then we will look closer at just which lessons there are to learn from it. 
Now the parable begins in verse one with a discovery. Now a discovery can be a wonderful thing or it can be a shocking and a painful thing. For example, if someone were to discover a cure for a disease you or a loved one has, you would celebrate, be a wonderful thing. You can also discover that your roof has a hole in it after a rainstorm and that can be a painful and even expensive discovery. Well, the discovery mentioned here in verses one and two is more like the hole in the roof, only worse and more expensive. Look what he says. Now, he was also saying to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. Now, Jesus moves away from speaking to the Pharisees and to the crowds and now he's honing in on his inner circle known here as the disciples. He's speaking now to believers and he's teaching them a lesson about how to be a believer uh, and to honor the Lord. And so he says, there was a rich man who had a manager and his manager was reported to him squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management for you can no longer be manager. Now something you need to be reminded of often I do about parables is they're not allegories necessarily. An allegory is a story in which every character and every circumstance has some deep spiritual meaning assigned to it. And we become guilty sometimes of over allegorizing the scriptures. A parable is fundamentally just an illustration. It is a story to help illustrate and clarify some important truth. And in this particular parable, there are two main characters. The first is a rich man. He's uh, really an absentee owner, likely a landowner, which was very common in that part of the world. He had a large agricultural operation and uh, he didn't manage it himself. This portion of his wealth was managed by someone called a steward who is someone who manages property rightfully belonging to another person. But, but a manager w- was more than the manager we think of as our local restaurant, someone who oversees the staff. He did that, but this particular type of steward was given what we would call today power of attorney. He could conduct business on behalf of the landowner. He could buy and sell in the name of the landowner. He could even let contracts. And so this rich man got word that the manager was doing all those things poorly. He was squandering the master's wealth. Another way of saying it, he was wasting it. In fact, that's how the King James, I believe, has it. He was wasting the master's wealth. Do you know what another word for a wasteful person is? It's a prodigal. And in chapter 15, we saw a story that we normally call the prodigal son. In chapter 16, we have a prodigal or a wasteful manager. Well, what do you do with an embezzler? Well, you fire him, don't you? Now, if you've ever had to let someone go at work, it's not an enjoyable experience or it shouldn't be, but it is sometimes necessary. This story tells you how not to do it. If you were writing a pamphlet on how not to fire someone, I would point to this character. So so here's what the rich man does. He finds his manager is swindling, wasting his property, but rather than firing him on the spot and hiring someone else to investigate how deep the conspiracy goes, he says, you're fired. You can't keep your job. Now go and make an accounting on how bad you were. But you're, you're fired in essence. Well, this leads this crooked manager to a dilemma. Now a dilemma of course is a difficult choice. Here it is in verse three. The manager said to himself, what shall I do? There's the dilemma. Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. 
In other words, my reputation is shot. I'll never work in this industry again. No one's going to hire me. But my hands are soft and my back is weak. I'm not able to do manual labor or not willing to. He was a white collar worker and with apology to the temptations, he was in fact too proud to beg. You'll get that on your way home. (laughs) The choices were bad. Become a beggar or starve to death. Now does that sound like a familiar choice? Just one chapter earlier, the prodigal son, chapter 15, verse 16, says he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. It's the same dilemma that the prodigal son had. He's either going to starve to death or he's going to go back home and beg for mercy. This man didn't think about begging for mercy. He said, here's my choices. I'm going to starve to death or I'm going to become even a worse criminal. And so here's what he he does. He knows he's getting older. He's no longer able to do or unwilling to do manual labor. He won't beg. There's no social security safety net. So he has to secure his future, his golden years, any way he can. And so he comes up with a plan. I call that plan the discount. Look at verse 4. He says, I know what I shall do so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors and he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? Now that tells us right away what a terrible manager he was. (laughs) His one job was to know how much these people owed his master and he has to ask them, hey, how much do you owe me? And one said, uh, I owe you a hundred measures of oil. By the way, that is an extreme amount. And so likely what we had here is a large plantation owner and he would allow people to work his land. And after the harvest, after they'd squeezed out the olives from the olive groves, then he got a percentage or he got a set amount in this case, a hundred measures of oil, which was three years labor for the common labor. And he said, here's what you do. Take your bill, that is your 100 measures of oil, sit down quickly and write 50. That is, I'm giving you a 50% discount on your loan. What a deal. And then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, 100 measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. Now, this is uh, sort of shocking, isn't it? He still has the authority because he wasn't fired on the spot, because he was given opportunity to stay around a little longer, he makes things even worse for the master. Now, incredibly, the master left this man with his authority. So the crooked manager leverages that authority to secure his future. Now you remember that the cultural system that Jesus lived in was based on reciprocation, particularly in the upper classes. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. We call that quid pro quo. You probably haven't heard that term. (laughs) Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for only inviting those who could reciprocate to their banquets. So understanding that culture, that it was based on reciprocation, the crooked manager goes to those who owed his master debts and he discounted them. And by the way, these are not payday loans. These are huge debts that were settled at harvest time. And he called every one of the Lord's debtors 
and he gave them all a discount. We just have two examples. There likely were many others. Now, why did he do this? Why did he discount their loans? Well, the end of verse four tells us, we don't have to wonder. He says that they may receive me into their houses. That is, they would have to reciprocate this favor. They would be beholding to this man for some time. That is, he would always have a place to live and he would always have a hot meal for the rest of his life. Now, certainly word of what he had done was going to get back to the rich master. What would you expect his reaction to be? What would your reaction be? Would it be anger, rage, murder? Well, herein lies the difficulty of this parable. Why it's so different than any of the other parables in the New Testament. Look at verse eight. And his master, what? Praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. Are you surprised by that reaction? I am. Most of us are surprised because uh, maybe we're even confused uh, of two things that are going on here in this text. One is the reaction of the master. Rather than flying off the handle, rather than suing this man or having him thrown in jail or even doing physical violence to him, he commends him for acting shrewdly, which is another word for wisely. He said, look, you, you did something pretty wise there. And, and the second thing that surprises me is the commentary by Jesus about what this man has done. He says, for the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. Now this is what he's illustrating. This is the point he's making and then he'll elucidate on that further. Now who are the sons of the children of this age? They're lost people, aren't they? They didn't use a lot of adjectives in the Old Testament in the New Testament times. And so someone would be described as a son of something to describe what they were like. For example, James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, were called the sons of thunder. They are always causing a ruckus wherever they went. Barnabas was called a son of encouragement because he was always encouraging people. And so sons of the children of this age are those who have bought in completely to this world system. They, he says, are more shrewd in how to use the earthly resources than the sons of light. Now, who then are the sons of light? Those are believers. Those are Christians. Remember, he's addressing this not to the masses, not to the Pharisees, but to his inner circle of disciples. He's speaking to regenerate people. Now, that is surprising. So here, in essence, is what is happening. Jesus is holding up a crooked character. There's no question about it. This man's a crook. Every chance he gets, he's doing something illegal and ethical. But Jesus holds up this crooked character, a representative of the lost and dying world and the world system that we live in as an example to Christians. Now, let me say this. As Christians, we should always be learning and growing. Would you agree? That's called sanctification, progressive sanctification. And here's something we forget as Christians is that we can learn from every situation and every person, Christian or non-Christian. Sometimes the, the lesson we learn is what not to do. In fact, Paul seemed to indicate that much of the Old Testament was written down for our benefit, not as a positive example of what to do, but as a negative example to say, don't do that. Don't make the same mistake that your ancestors did. 
Now, I know that I have plenty of bad habits that I have developed over the years, but, but I have tried to learn from the mistakes of others, particularly when I was a very young man. Uh, that's why I never drank alcohol, have never in my life, is because I saw how my friends behaved and the foolish mistakes they made when they did. And that's why I, I don't use profanity because uh, when I was a very young man and I heard my friends cursing, they just sounded ignorant to me. That their vocabulary was so limited that they had to supplement it with four or five words. But, but here's a different story here. Jesus seems to be holding up this man not as a negative example. He's not saying don't be like this man. He's holding him up as a positive example, even a role model for Christians. Why would he do that? Why would he hold up a crooked character? Because he's teaching a straightforward lesson. Now he's not endorsing his embezzlement. Don't get it wrong. The Bible says thou shalt not steal. Jesus certainly is not taking away from that prohibition. He is saying that this man is wise because he used everything that he had to secure his future. The only thing this man was left with for that brief period of time, how long it was after he was fired, was his delegated authority. And he used that brief time of delegated authority to secure the rest of his life, a place to live and something to eat. Now we're getting down to it. Now stick with me here. This will bless you. Because Jesus lays out the meaning of this parable finally with a series of statements. Now, an authoritative statement is called a dictum, and the plural of dictum is dicta. And Jesus uses three dicta concerning wise stewardship of the resources entrusted to us. It begins in verse 9. Jesus is speaking now to his disciples. The parable is over, and now he's explaining the meaning, the application of the parable. He says, and I say to you, to my disciples, Make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, what is the wealth of unrighteousness? Well, I take that to be temporal things, possessions, material, certainly money. Money is not evil, is it? When he calls it the wealth of unrighteousness. He, he's not calling the money unrighteousness. He's calling the system through which money is used fundamentally unrighteous. It, it's an unrighteous generation. It's an unrighteous system in which we live. But we have to live in it, don't we? Christians have to buy bread just like non-Christians. We have to have money. And, and people often misquote the Bible as saying that money is the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And the Bible in many places instructs us not to trust money. Now, why shouldn't we trust money? Why shouldn't we love money? Because it makes promises it can't keep. Notice what Jesus says in verse 9. He says, and I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, comma, so that when it fails, he doesn't say if it fails. He says, when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwelling. So, so how do we know money will fail and, and how can it fail? Well, there are a number of ways it can fail. One, it can fail in the economic crash. 
Sometimes in economic crashes, inflation goes to double digits as it did in Venezuela about a year ago. Maybe it took you a lifetime to build up a nest egg and inflation can wipe it out in a matter of days. It can be stolen, can't it? We know this. It can be destroyed and taken in a natural disaster. The, the joke is that uh, when tornadoes and storms hit, it usually is in the poorest neighborhoods. That wasn't the case recently in Dallas, was it? In which one of the most erudite and uh, wealthy neighborhoods in Dallas was, was nearly destroyed. And then this tells us that uh, our wealth can be taken in a number of ways. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. Now, um, there is one way in which all earthly wealth will fail, and that is when you die. The Bible says it's appointed every man once to die and then to be judged by God. No matter how much wealth you accumulate over a lifetime, you may live to be 120 years old, you may be a multi-billionaire, but the second you die, that money becomes absolutely worthless. Even if you manage to hold on to the second you die, if you're able to avoid natural disasters and economic crashes and thieves, the second you die, that wealth is gone. It will have no value for you in the afterlife. So then, what is a wise Christian to do with earthly wealth? Well, first we need to know what we're not to do. Matthew 6, 19, Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus says, don't trust in this life. It's temporary. Don't trust in the wealth and the material that you can accumulate because it's temporary. It's all going away soon. So that's what not to do. And so in contrast, what should we do? Well, he says, store up treasures in heaven. How do we do that? Well, that's exactly what Jesus is teaching us in this parable today in Luke 16, how to store up treasure in heaven. And so he says, here's how. Make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. Here's what he's saying in essence. Invest your earthly temporary resources, your time, talent, and treasure, we say, in kingdom endeavors. Now, what are kingdom endeavors? They are those endeavors that seek to bring people into heaven. So he's saying rather than accumulating wealth on earth that can be taken away in a moment's notice and will ultimately go away at your passing, a wise or a shrewd Christian invests in kingdom efforts that are designed to bring glory to Christ and bring lost people to salvation. Now, how do we do that? We need wisdom, don't we? James 1 tells us that if anyone needs wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men freely. We need wisdom on how to invest our earthly wealth. Well, let me give you some advice there from the scriptures. The first way we should invest our earthly wealth is through regular systematic giving through the local church. Now the Lord works primarily according to the scripture through the local church. Now you might have noticed over the last 15 years or so that I don't preach on legalistic tithing. Here's why. Because if you add up all the tithes of the Old Testament it comes to about 38%. All those different offerings and tithes that we're taking. If you want to follow that system we can do that. 
Now, I believe in tithing. We practice it in our home. But what I tell my children is that tithing is like training wheels on their bicycle. It helps you get up and going, get some momentum, but it's not designed to be an end all. Can you imagine seeing an 18-year-old boy riding around with training wheels on his bike? We wonder what went wrong. And some of us, though, if we get to giving a tithe, we think, well, I've, I've paid off God. I don't owe him anything anymore. Look, the tithe was always a symbol that everything belongs to the Lord. What God cares about most is not that you check off the box on your envelope that you tithe. What he cares about is that your heart is transformed so that you know that everything belongs to him. And so I would encourage all of you to give regularly, according to 1 Corinthians, and systematically through your local church. And then above and beyond that, giving to support causes and ministries that seek to accomplish kingdom purposes. That's why we have the gift boxes outside. That's why we give to uh, help uh, through the baby bottle campaign. These organizations that we believe in, and we do have criteria for who we allow to solicit here. They have to be overtly Christian and they have to be overtly evangelistic. That is, we want to invest in what the Lord is doing. Those things which bring honor to Jesus by bringing people to heaven. But giving, friends, is not just about your money. Stewardship is much more than your money. It's about every aspect of your life, your personal gifts and talents. I think it's ultimately about our time. How we spend our time is the greatest indicator of our attitude towards Christian stewardship. That is, you like the crooked manager in this story, bring to bear whatever resources you have for the sake of your future. That you view every decision of life, be it monetary or otherwise, as something you are investing into your future. Look at verse 10. His second dictum is this. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. He who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Jesus knows men's hearts. And here's what those 12 disciples were thinking, because it's probably what many in this room are thinking. Well, if I was rich, then I'd be like that. If I had lots of resources, I'd be generous with it, but I only have a little, so I have to watch it closely. Well, the Bible says that's not true. Here's what the Bible says. We are exactly who we are, whether we have a little or much. That is, if your heart is right with God, that is, your treasure is in heaven, that's where your heart is, you will be generous with even a little. Now, we are out of time, but there's one more dictum. It's verse 13. He says this. It's really the summary of, of the whole teaching that Jesus gives us about stewardship. He says, no servant can serve two masters. And that word there is slave. A slave by law couldn't have two masters because his loyalties would be divided. You can only be a slave of one master at a time. But that's true also in our hearts, isn't it? We can't be loyal to two competing forces. He says, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Here's the point, you cannot serve God in money. It is a fundamental impossibility. You can't five days a week pursue the almighty dollar 
and be obsessed with accumulation and then on Sunday saying, Lord, it's all about you. Can't do it. Can't serve two masters. And this is a lesson I think that we must remind one another as Christians all the time. It's certainly one we must teach our children because they're being taught something very different in the world, aren't they? They're being taught that they're number one and they're going to have to scratch and claw and live a life of entitlement. That it's all about them and don't let anyone get in your way of a comfortable existence. If we're going to raise children in this culture that are cross-cultural, we have to be intentional. We can't assume they're going to get it because the preacher says it once or twice a year. We have to talk about it when we get up in the morning and when we lay down at, at, lie at night. Um, I've told you before, my wife and I sat down a few years ago. Our children are getting older. I can't believe how fast it's going. And we sat down with a piece of paper and we wrote down about 20 things we want to teach our kids before they leave home. And right at the very top is this. We want to teach them to love people and use things. Too many times we get it backwards, don't we? We love things and we use people. See, it's not a sin to have a house. not a sin to have a nice car. It's not a sin to want to send your kids to a good school. So long as your heart's attitude is that you want to use that house and that car and that education to bring glory to Jesus. Everything we have materially, every gift we have intrinsically is just a tool in our toolbox designed to bring glory to God. And if it becomes something other than that, we need to get rid of it. And by the way, this is a good way to know how to spend your money. If you have a decision to make, is this wise to invest this material possession, this money in this particular thing? Here's the first question we ought to ask. Can it and will it bring glory to Jesus? And if it will not, guess what? Probably shouldn't do it. Now, I'm not going to tell you how to apply that in your own life. You have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit just like I do if you're a Christian. But we need to be thoughtful and we need to be intentional, and we need to take those things that the Lord blesses us with temporarily and give it back to Him every day and say, Lord, this is yours. Give me wisdom how to bring glory through it to your name. Use things, love God, serve God with it. Now, here's a question he asks Why would God entrust you with more earthly resources if you're not being faithful? with the ones you've already been given. That's what he asked. He says in verse 12, if you've not been faithful in the use of which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Why would the Lord entrust you with heavenly treasure if you've not been faithful with this old worthy, uh, earthly treasure that's going to be worthless in just a few years? The answer is he won't. But on the other hand, if you will be faithful with this mammon, this wealth of unrighteousness, as the Lord helps you, he said, you will secure a welcome into heaven. Let me ask you another question, finally. Why wouldn't God want to bless a person who is determined to use all that is entrusted to him or her for the glory of God? I think he would, won't you? Why wouldn't God bless a church who is determined to use every cent that comes through its offerings for his glory? Well, I believe he will. 
But it means that every member of our church has to commit that everything is the Lord's. He owns everything. We own nothing. And we seek His wisdom to help us glorify Jesus through it. Let's ask for that help. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, no one likes to talk about money, least of all me. But it's necessary. Much of Jesus' teaching was about it. We live in a system in the world where money is necessary. We deal with it every day. And almost unbelievably, Jesus indicates in this parable that how we spend it, how we invest it, will have a determining factor on what our eternal future is like. He's talking about rewards. And we know that salvation is a gift. We can't buy or earn heaven. But Lord, we know that there's going to be rewards in heaven. And they are based upon how we are faithful in this life. So Father, some in this room have been given much and some have been given less. You tell us that uh, to whom much is given, much is required. But Lord, something is required of all of us. So Father, I pray we'd live our lives in such a way that if you choose to bless us with more, that we can be trusted to use whatever you give us for your glory. I pray that for every member of this church, every child and every adult, pray for every staff member, and I pray it for our church as a whole, that we'd never be guilty of investing too much in this life, but that we would always be looking for ways to invest in your kingdom. Give us wisdom to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.